From Eyewitness News, this is Newsmakers. Special Counsel Robert Mueller has agreed to testify before Congress on his probe into Russian meddling in the 2016 elections. Will this ramp up the pressure to launch impeachment proceedings in the House, or will Democrats focus on using the 2020 election to push President Trump from office? And how is one of the nation's highest-profile lawmakers feeling about his party's prospects next year? Our guest this week on Newsmakers, Massachusetts Congressman Joe Kennedy. Welcome to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White. Joining me on the program, Eyewitness News reporter Ted Nisi. Congressman Joe Kennedy, it's good to have you back. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So last time we checked in with you, you were not ready to call for impeachment proceedings into President Trump. Where do you stand now? I think um, times have changed, and I think the Congress has to begin those impeachment proceedings. Look, I've had the chance now over the course of the past several weeks to uh, read the Mueller report in its entirety. I've talked to legal experts, I've talked to my colleagues, and um, it is evident, uh, if you actually read the report, that um, the president, I believe, committed multiple counts of obstruction of justice. And once you get to that threshold, uh, there's, I think, it, it falls on Congress to essentially um, uphold our responsibility to protect and defend the Constitution. And that's, I think that's, what, that's what's required, and that's what I uh, intend to do. So, um, you know, this is obviously significant. I don't want to call it a change of heart for you, but this is really the first time you unequivocally said that uh, Congress should proceed with uh, impeachment proceedings. You said it was because you read the Mueller report, which came out in April. Yep. What specifically in the report was the tipping point for you? So <clears throat> the report is, it's exhaustive. It's about 450 pages. There's a lot in there. It's broken up into two volumes. Uh, first part deals with the Russian interference campaign into our elections, which is egregious and horrible. And if you go through it, it there's all sorts of, um, put it politely, non-complimentary aspects as to, and descriptions as to the activities of a Trump, or Trump campaign officials at that point. However, the special counsel indicates that there was no, as they define it, conspiracy between a Trump campaign to benefit from the Russian interference, although it, they do say explicitly that they expected that they would benefit. There was no quid pro quo, if you will. The second half of that report is all about obstruction. And as you go through it, particularly as a former prosecutor, the, what the special counsel details is on a number of instances, they lay out the facts about what happened, they then apply the facts to the law when it comes to obstruction. And they say on a number of different occasions that there is more than, that there's at least substantial evidence to indicate that the requirements to prove obstruction have been met. And when you hear that, when you read that, when you understand what that says, that the President of the United States engaged in, in multiple acts to try to obstruct a federal investigation, then I, I, I think our hand is forced. This is not something I take lightly. This is not something that um, I would wish that any member of Congress or any government would have to go through. I, I know it's divisive. I know there are strong feelings about this, but I also believe that when you have a president that has willfully broken the law repeatedly to try to uh, evade justice for um, various uh, acts of uh, illegal acts, then Congress has to hold them accountable. So you will be at odds with Speaker Pelosi on this issue right now. Did you yeah. warn her about this new position? Um, uh, maybe she's watching. So <laughs> I, I haven't had the conversation with her yet. Um, she's a loyal look, newsmaker's viewer. So <laughs> it's good you came here to tell her. Yeah. So um, I haven't had the conversation with her yet. I, um, 
I think uh, I respect her opinion on this. Um, I respect the opinion of my colleagues. About a third of our caucus has come out in favor of impeachment at this point. I, I respect where those that have, where they are, I respect those that haven't quite gotten there yet. I intend to continue to talk to our colleagues about it and talk to the speaker because I do think that, um, unfortunately, from my perspective, this is a threshold question. And I, I don't think having had time to, again, read that full report, discuss with constitutional scholars, experts, um, talk to some of my colleagues, I'm not even sure this is even a close call. There can be, uh, there's a little vagueness right now sometimes when we talk about having an impeachment inquiry. And, you know, for people at home, you say you support it. What, would you want it to start next week? Is it something you see starting months from now? I know, obviously, a lot has to happen for it to even begin. But sort of when you say, I think we need to do this, you're saying we need to do it now? Or you so, look, I, I think from my perspective, we've crossed that threshold. I think there's evidence out there that says that he has committed these acts of obstruction and he needs to be held to account, period. I think we should begin those at, as, as quickly as we can. I respect the fact that the majority of my colleagues aren't quite there yet. Our speaker isn't quite there yet. And ultimately, that's going to be up to some of my colleagues and the speaker. I respect their opinion. But I will continue to talk to them and try to convince them as to the perspective that I have. And I think, Ted, really clearly on this, much of this has been focused on, the discussion has been focused on trying to convince other Democrats, convince the speaker that this is what has to be done. This is not a partisan issue. There's nothing. I, I read those documents not as a, a, a Democrat trying to get a Republican president, but the last thing in the world I want to do is to spend the next several months going through impeachment proceedings. I don't want to do this. I think that when you have a special counsel that is deeply respected for his service to our country and his career in law enforcement that has assembled the best team of investigators in modern American history that comes out with a report that says there's substantial evidence to believe that the president's conducted multiple acts of obstruction, what else are you supposed to do? Well, should he have made the call then on obstruction of justice? You're a former prosecutor. I, yes, he, I, I, without question. I don't think that's even uh, even close. I. I understand that the that Mr. Mueller decided to the special counsel decided to abide by the terms of an office of legal counsel memo, a, a office within the Department of Justice that is supposed to provide guidelines for uh, for prosecutors, and I understand that. I would also counter respectfully to Mr. Mueller that that is a memo that is not binding law, that is not a Supreme Court decision. There's no case law on this. If you have those concerns, I would have. Um, the entire point of the special counsel is to try to remove, given the political sensitivities around impeachment, is to try to remove this from the political process and uh, uh, approach this as objectively as one can with the resources necessary to try to uncover the truth. I think coming essentially right up to that line and then punting that to Congress to say, hey, you guys figure this out, is not, you, you kind of mess with the entire intent of what the special counsel statute is supposed to be all about. We have so much to talk about. I don't want to take the whole show on this, but I just have to uh, push back when you say it's not partisan. Speaker Pelosi right now clearly disagrees with you on whether it would be perceived as partisan, mm -hmm. even if in your view it shouldn't be. It's a fact of law. She said recently, quote, Trump is goading us to impeach him. Mm -hmm. Every single day he's just like taunting because he knows it would be very divisive in the country, but he doesn't really care. He just wants to solidify his base. Um, uh, is she wrong on the politics? I don't think she is wrong, but I also don't think, I think respectfully, on some of this, I'm not so sure it matters, one. Two, there is a Republican colleague of ours in the House that has called for impeachment as well. And this is where, getting back to what I was saying a second ago, the fact that this has been so focused on, hey, Democrats, how do you come together and impeach the president? This shouldn't be a Democratic, this shouldn't be a, a Democratic inquiry. This is an inquiry from members of Congress that took an oath to, to, to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. And it clearly, the special counsel clearly says, if you read the darn report, that, that he committed obstruction. 
period. And if that's the case, what, how do we preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution and then not try to hold the president accountable? And for my Republican colleagues, and there are a number of them that behind closed doors, well, they might not have told me that they're for impeachment, certainly don't appreciate or like the acts and activities of this administration. Well, then it's time to put that aside and actually step up and do what we are to to execute the oath that we were sworn to, that we swore to take, and to protect the Constitution, protect our country. And I hope that over the next several weeks, I hope that with Mr. Mueller's testimony before Congress, more of them will do so. And that's where this country should also go. Not focusing on the political the, the politicalization of this and focusing on the what Democrats are going to do, but ask our Republican colleagues why they think that after all this time, a 448-page report that indicates what it indicates is worth just throwing it out into the trash bin and not even bothering to take a look. We're going to shift gears to, uh, on Monday, I believe, you're going back down to the border, yeah. right? And this will be, correct me if I'm wrong, your third visit down to the border? Yes. Um, third, yeah, third visit as a member of Congress. As ever this time you're going to a border facility in Clint, Texas, and that's the facility that's come under uh, quite a bit of fire recently. You've been there before, as I said. What are you looking for this time? What's so, going to be different for you? So, uh, a couple of things. As of now, and the itinerary might change between now and Monday, but at least when I went through the briefing with our staff yesterday, there's two, two stops that we're planning on taking. One is at a border control facility, uh, border patrol facility, and then the second is this facility in, in Clint. Um, I had been down to the, this facility called Tornillo, which is outside of El Paso before, which is where a number of the migrant children were being held at the beginning stages of that processing. I have, like so many Americans, have read, have seen the, just the horrifying images that have come out, have listened to and read some of the testimony from lawyers that have been inside these facilities and described just unspeakable horrors that is being perpetrated on these kids. Um, candidly, I expect that by the time um, authorities understand that there's going to be about 15 or so members of Congress that are going to walk into that facility, that it's going to look pretty good by then. Um, and so part of what I'm looking for is not just what am I going to see and what are we going to hear, but what questions are we going to be able to ask and who's going to provide the answers. And when you have the, the stories and sworn affidavits of individuals that went through these facilities, saw what they saw, and we have a chance to ask some of the folks that are in charge whether these folks are telling the truth, whether they're misrepresenting it. We, we want answers. I think the American public deserves answers. Certainly, these kids deserve answers. Under no circumstance, I don't care what, what law your parents may or may not have broken or what the laws of this country are or else, the, the idea that we're going to take the unwillingness of our president to actually try to solve this immigration problem, we're going to take that out on a two, three, four, five-year-old child on a child of only a couple months old and force little boys and girls to care for kids that are even younger than they are, this is unconscionable. <laughs> and I think Congress deserves answers, the American public deserves answers, and I hope we get some. Uh, this issue is, again, one that seems to be dividing House Democrats at the moment. There was a breakdown in the caucus, just we're taping on Friday, yeah. on Thursday, over a bill on border funding. Uh, after a bunch of back and forth during the week, moderate Democrats combined with Republicans to pass a Senate bill that does not really rein in the administration's policies as some of the more progressive Democrats wanted. You were one of the Democrats who voted no on that bill, as did David Cicilline. Are you frustrated with the colleagues like Bill Keating and Jim Langevin who voted yes? So, a couple things. Um, not frustrated with our colleagues in the House that voted yes. Frustrated a bit with our Senate colleagues that essentially took all leverage that we might have had to get a better deal and cut our legs out from under us. Yes, I'm frustrated with them. Three, I do think that 
well, there's going to be some diversity of opinion within a Democratic caucus when you get uh, a couple hundred members about what the right solution here might be. We are largely in, in, in sync about the fact that, one, this is unconscionable, two, this needs to get fixed, and three, it needs to get fixed now. That is in stark contrast to our Republican colleagues that are basically saying, and particularly the administration, that is saying, you know what? This is, in fact, the, what we are hoping for, to try to use this as a deterrent to keep people from coming across to begin with. That is their definition of success, and we have been horrified by this and are trying to change it. We do have some disagreements, and there were disagreements, about how to best, how to most effectively put in various checks on the administration to make sure that the additional funding that we are giving them isn't going to be used to continue to, to abuse children and take advantage of their, and exploit them for their own political gain, yes. That being said, when you were dealt the hand that Speaker Pelosi was dealt, you don't have, there's not a whole lot of other cards you can play. And so when you actually look at the statements from my colleagues, whether you voted for that bill or against it, the ire wasn't actually focused at the Speaker. The ire is largely focused at some of our Senate colleagues that didn't leave us much of, a, much of an out and an opportunity to actually put on additional controls to make sure that this money is not used and that these kids do not continue to get exploited. Do you think that, you know, when it comes to immigration, there are a lot of moving parts, but for those that are here illegally, mm -hmm. should they be deported? So I'd break that down a bit. One, you commit a crime in this country, a violent crime in particular, yeah. Um, there's a certain set of, I think those folks that have committed violent crimes that are engaged in um, nefarious activity that are a threat to the public, that is one thing. Um, for the roughly 10 plus, now maybe 12 plus million people that are here that have become a fabric of our country, that have been here for years, I think our history has shown that, one, they are part of our community, they are part of our country. We need to find a process to, to actually integrate them into our country because self-deportation does not work. That was the, the slogan of a, or the, the policy of a Republican presidential campaign several years ago, and that didn't work. We know that doesn't work. We, too, are a country that does not believe in two different systems of livelihood and justice in this country. And the fact is, if by having millions of people here without proper documentation that then feel like they cannot call the police for fear of being targeted when they go to court or when they are victims of crime, that are taken advantage of from wage theft for, um, for uh, create an underground economy because they feel like they can be exploited, they are subject to exploitation because they don't have the similar protections of other individuals. We have to solve this problem. There are ways to ensure that of those folks that are here without that proper documentation, we can earn their way back to a place where they, they don't have to fear deportation every day. That's the process that we should engage in. That's, by the way, the, the basis of a bill that passed the Senate and the Obama administration back in 2013 with a veto-proof majority, nearly 70 votes, Democrat, Republican, broad, broad-based support. We had the votes to pass it in the House. We would have solved the vast majority of these challenges, not every one of them, but the vast majority of them, and Speaker John Boehner wouldn't put it on the floor. We had the votes to pass it. We had a Republican support to pass it. Speaker Boehner wouldn't give us a vote. We had a chance to vote. We had the votes last, just last fall to pass and codify DACA. We had the votes to do it. Republican leadership knew we had the votes to do it. They rolled their members. We didn't get a vote on that one either. This has been a, a, one of the most heartbreaking aspects of my time in Congress, now nearly seven years, to watch this, the, this topic get forced through a political um, to hot potato in a way that just is so crushing to so many people that are just trying to make sure that they have a, a better life and safety for their children. Um, that I don't think is too much for them to ask for, and I think that we can provide. All right, Congressman, we are way overdue for a break. We're going to take that right now. When we come back, we're going to look ahead to the 2020 election. Stay with us. You're watching Newsmakers.
Welcome back to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White. To my left, Eyewitness News reporter Ted Nisi. Our guest this week is Congressman Joe Kennedy. Congressman, did you watch the presidential debates? <laughs> I watched Wednesday and Thursday. Do you I was... wonder why you watched Wednesday? <laughs> <laughs> Thursday, I was stuck uh, on an airport in an airport and a delayed flight, and so I was following along on Twitter. All right. So Wednesday was yes. when uh, your former law professor, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, was involved in that debate. What stood out to you from those? Uh, One, I think um, the rest of the country got to see um, why Massachusetts has elected Elizabeth Warren twice to the United States Senate. I thought she did an extraordinary job. She's extraordinarily smart. She knows these issues and has a plan for literally everything out there. But I think more than any other candidate on either night has demonstrated a deep understanding of some of the structural challenges in the country and ways to address it. And so it's not just platitudes. It's not just surface or superficial level analysis. It's recognizing because of a, a long history in our own life of dedicating herself to ever the bankruptcy code and economic opportunity and economic mobility and these economic structural economic challenges that people face in order to make sure that they are able to protect and provide for their families and the fact is is that our country is not doing that at the moment a middle class job no longer provides for a middle class lifestyle and in order to to i think readjust that and to make sure that that promise still holds true, there are major structural changes that need to be made in this country. And I think you heard Senator Warren articulate many of those last night, or excuse me, Wednesday night. Um, and I think she did very well. You've uh, acknowledged publicly you uh, took at least a look at running for president. A lot of people are asking. It was a quick one. Your family may have looked at that once or twice in the past. Um, what was what was the deciding factor? You did have some conversations. It's not like you can't talk to people. Who, who no. So, like. I mean, the, the, I, I guess, first off, there, I think across the country there's a lot of folks that are um, concerned with um, the actions, attitude, policies of the current president. And so a lot of people are trying to find anybody that might be able to uh, provide some promises beating him. Honored that some folks thought that I, my name should be included in that. That is a, obviously a, a big choice and a big decision to make at a time when I got a one-year-old and a three-year-old and a busy job. I'm away from my family already 100 nights a year. That's not something that I was all that eager to pursue at this point in my life. Um, I got a pretty full plate as is, and I'm happy where I'm at, and we'll take it from there as it comes. Would you consider running for uh, Senator Warren's seat if she is elected president? Uh, if another seat is to come open at that point, we'll take a, I'll take a look at it. Again, my family's been doing involved in elective office for a while. I think the, the number one rule on that um, is, before anything else, that is a family decision because it impacts your family almost more than, than other than military service than any other job you can get. And so um, you gotta make sure that's right for for my family, two little kids, um, and a whole host of other factors. And if it does, we'll take it. One other, we'll take uh, a look at it when it comes, but not on the agenda. One other family question yeah. uh, while we have you. It's gonna be 10 years this summer uh, since your granduncle Ted Kennedy passed away. At the time you were, I think you were still a district attorney maybe at the time when you not passed. Not even. Not even yet, okay, not so you were younger. Um, time has passed, you're now a member of Congress. I'm just curious, when you look back, uh, what's what's different about how you view him now as someone who has now been in Congress like he was versus when he died and you hadn't experienced any of this? I think, um, one, the level of commitment that it takes to be in this job that long. Um, it's uh, this job anyway, a House member, and I'm sure similarly for the Senate. It's an extraordinary honor. You feel that honor any time you walk through the halls of Congress. Um, you do, truly. But it demands an awful lot of you and an awful lot of your family. Um, and the commitment that it takes for somebody to have done that as long as he did with the level of dedication that he had to the job. Um, two, the respect that he, uh, with which he held his, his colleagues. 
despite very strong differences with an awful lot of them. Um, if you want to legislate, the ability to try to find ways to, you can disagree on 99 things out of 100, find the one and work on the one. And I think he was extraordinary at being able to do that. And I think um, his legislative record is a testament to that. When, uh, back to the debates, when the yeah. candidates were asked to raise their hands, mm -hmm. if they supported abolishing private health insurance, Senator Warren mm -hmm. was one of them. I'm wondering if you were asked that, would you have raised your hand? So. Um, Yes, with. I'm a supporter of Medicare for All. I, I believe that our health care system needs a strong structural overhaul because there are disparities in access to care in this country that still are just not acceptable. No country on the planet has been able to find a way to successfully implement a single-payer system without some form of private insurance. I think it's well worth a shot to see if we can, but I want to make sure that the, the, my guiding principle in all of that is that people get access to health care that they need when they need it at a price that people can afford. But in that binary moment, it sounds like you wouldn't be able to raise your hand because... No, I mean, look, I, I support the legislation. I, I've, when I, I think there's, there are aspects of that legislation that as any bill goes through, any major structural overhaul goes through, goes through a legislative process as we try to make sure that we can get, we get that bill right. The promise of Medicare for all is the fact that every single person in this country gets access to health care that they need when they need it. That is a, a policy that I stand behind and I value that I stand behind 100%. And I want to make I want to see if we can actually do that. When you turn around and say, hey, is there a country we can model that, that, that after? No country has been able to do that effectively as of yet. We can be first. You also take a look at Massachusetts. We've got over 98% of our people covered with insurance. Uh, so there's ways to do that with a hybrid model. We still, however, even in Massachusetts, struggle making sure that there are not major disparities to, to care that we've seen. Today, uh, across our country, an African-American woman is 243% more likely to die during childbirth than a white woman. It is 70% more likely, she is 70% more likely to die when adjusted for income and education. Right? My uncle, Senator Kennedy in 1971, gave a, a speech on the Senate floor announcing his support and his introduction of a single-payer bill. He talked about one of the motivating factors for that were the disparities of care that the United States had vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world. He pointed to things like infant mortality, maternal mortality, life expectancy. Now, since 1971, all of those statistics for us have clearly gotten better. Relative to the rest of the developed world, they've gotten worse. So my support for Medicare for All is a clarion call for saying, hey, this incremental shift that we have seen, while it has benefited those that have access to the best healthcare systems in the world, that's great. We have left behind millions and millions of Americans who do not have access to it. And that's just no longer acceptable. And so, yes, we need to make sure people get that coverage. And if that means abolishing private insurance, then that means abolishing private insurance. When, uh, let's took a look locally in your district, um, you and some other leaders about a month ago were at Brayton Point. Uh, yeah. The towers are down. Uh, they, there's a company, uh, Ann Barrick, I think it's pronounced, yep. uh, will turn the site into a clean energy center. You've been talking a lot about the blue economy mm -hmm. and the potential of the ocean waves and the uh, potential of wind power. What do you think needs to happen to actually, you know, people in Mass and Rhode Island have been hearing about this for a while, to really make that into the kind of, like, big jobs center that, that political leaders been, have been touting for a long time? So. The biggest thing is that federal, local, and state policy has to start actually supporting what is already going on organically and what has been happening in southeastern New England, not just Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, all together now for years and trying to actually make the moment that we're in 
possible. Part of that has come with just the development of new technologies with the decreasing cost of offshore wind and the, the um, turbines and the, um, the, uh, the windmill stems that actually go into the, into the water and then the ground. Um, part of that has been the permitting process for offshore so that we can actually get this, uh, the process up and running. But the main issue here is that there's already major, uh, an awful lot of synthesis that takes place across southeastern Massachusetts, into Rhode Island, into Connecticut, and it's time federal policy actually caught up with that so that we can make sure that it's easier for people to get to work if you live in Massachusetts but work in Providence or vice versa. That when you have, we're just at, uh, it's Friday, we were just at a, um, <clears throat> an announcement for the midterm review of a major economic development um, project looking at what it will take to actually support a blue economy largely based off of offshore wind for southeastern New England. Um, there's an awful lot of great stuff going on. And Barak, you pointed to a number of pieces of legislation that have been filed to preserve or expand the investment tax credit for wind. Looking, working very closely with Congressman Cicilline on various projects to try to make sure that as federal funds are directed into this region, that they take a regional approach to that economic development and not one that is just focused solely on Rhode Island or just Massachusetts, because the only people that seem to pay attention to that invisible border between the two are the politicians that actually work here and not every other family that calls this place home. So let's try to make sure that those policies are reflective of a community need that is already recognizing that there's major economic assets that we have in this region, let's line them up and support them. We have uh, well under a minute left. Um, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, uh, her Martha's Vineyard summer estates on the market for $65 million. Total bummer. Are you going to make an offer? I <laughs> 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 uh, used to, uh, have you ever been there? I, I have been there. It has oh, been, wow. um, it's been a while. Um, it turns out when you show up with 150 relatives, it's a bit of a fight for the couch. <laughs> good to know. <laughs> I do wonder how you guys manage like the beds at Hyannisport at this point as you get more cousins and stuff. Um, if you think beds are a problem, you should try Thanksgiving turkey. <laughs> Congressman Joe Kennedy, it was great uh, seeing you and have you back on the program. Thank you for watching. Have a happy and safe 4th of July, and we will see you next time here on Newsmakers.